you know, for me, oftentimes when I bring up therapy to friends or family, they often think of the cliche of the, you know, laying across the couch and just <laughs> talking about your childhood forever. So, so in your best efforts, how would you define therapy? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think for me, therapy is a space where one can go to kind of explore what has happened to them in the past, what is happening to them in the present, and what they hope to happen for themselves in the future. Um, you know, all three are uh, linked. Um, so it can be helpful to explore things that happened in the past. But the goal is and the idea is to not stay there. Um, um, it can be helpful to explore each of these arenas because sometimes we can get stuck in different places. And so it's really uh, therapy is a space that will help us to generate new generate new ideas based off of maybe new insights that we're having for the first time about what's going on for us. Um, healing that we need to do in order to help us move forward. Um, but the entire goal is to help us step into living the life that we do want to lead for ourselves. Can you tell me when did you decide you wanted to be a therapist and what the what the journey to becoming a therapist consists of? Yeah. Um, so it was a kind of a circuitous route for me. I've always been um, interested in people and relationships. Um, I've always been someone that people um, were felt comfortable talking to and engaging with about really kind of personal things. Um, and the first path that I took uh, was more of an artistic route. So I went into my undergraduate degree for drama and was exploring people and relationships through a, a very an artistic lens, right? Um, doing character development, trying to figure out tactics and motives and really exploring relationships that characters were building and the dynamics between, you know, characters in plays and, and, and movies and books and stories. Um, and I did that for a while. And then I realized that um, while I enjoy theater and drama and acting, it wasn't necessarily so much the performance that brought me joy. It was the understanding of the people whom we were depicting. And I um, found myself um, really be gravitating towards wanting to be more um, hands-on, face-to-face with other live humans <laughs> and not just <laughs> characters <laughs> in books and plays. Um, and I found myself, uh, I was, I became a teaching artist. And then after um, doing that for a little bit, I found myself um, working as a special education teacher, teaching life and social skills to students with high functioning autism. Um, and in that job, I really found myself facing um, family dynamics um, in a way that I had not really noticed or seen before. Um, I was meeting with parents monthly to discuss the progress of their children and noticing that parents of students who are neurodivergent have a higher rate of divorce or separation because of the challenges and that there's not a lot of support for those couples and those relationships out there. And I wanted to be a space for that. Um, so I decided to go back to graduate school. I quit my full-time job. I entered graduate school full-time at like the age of like 30 or 31. <laughs> it was like completely <laughs> just changed my life. But um, I, would, I would do it all again if I had to. And I think that I would probably do it in the same way. Um, so while this is my third career, I do believe it's going to be kind of like my main and final one. Um, I've been seeing clients for about three years now, and I find a tremendous joy in the work that I'm doing with all of my clients on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and I do believe that, you know, the life that I led and the experiences that I've had have helped me in the work that I bring with my clients. So I feel comfortable having come into it later in life. I like the fact that you had the courage to take the risk to making the career changes. Because I know for a lot of people, changing changing their career, whether whether it's in their 30s or even their 20s, it's a big step. And a lot of people feel like, you know what, this, you know, this job is paying well and I might not feel fully fulfilled, but mm -hmm. it's good enough. Can, can you walk me back to when you made that decision of, you know what, I don't think I want to do theater anymore or when you made the decision of I don't think that teaching is my career how hard it was to to take that step forward it was very hard um 
because like you said, we find ourselves getting into a, a pattern, a routine, we're comfortable, there's some security there. Um, but what really hit me, and I'll go back to the, the performance piece, was um, I had an agent and everything. Like I, w- I, I w- had done some commercials and you know, I was starting to kind of get my foot really in the door. Um, I joke around and I say to my friends, like I was an okay actor. I wasn't like the best person out there, but I also, I was like firmly in the middle. You know, I was like a <laughs> solid performer. It was nothing extraordinary, but nothing terrible. But I had, I believe I had what it take, took to be successful in it. Um, I just started to get to the point where I would get audition notices from my agent and I would get angry. Mm. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to go. Why is this happening? I have many things planned for my day. Um, <laughs> I have work, I have this, I have that. And now everything is being upended because I have to just drop everything and run off to this audition on, on mm. the chance that maybe I'll get selected. Um, mm. And I did, I did go into every audition um, very open and very willing um, and excited to be be there, but when that changed, I knew that something something had significantly shifted for me. Um, you know, my mindset had always been: I go into my auditions, and I think to myself, "I'm here to help you solve your problem. You need someone for this role. That person is me." Right? I wouldn't say that out loud because that sounds a little cocky. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. But you have you have to have that confidence, and that comes through in in your audition. It comes through in your performances. I was getting significant a number of callbacks, or but or decent number of callbacks, and I was doing okay, um, according to my agent. Um, but I just I didn't want to do it. I was so angry to have to be there, and I was not able to step into the mental space or the energetic space to really give my all. Um, and it started to show in my auditions, and I started my my callbacks were decreasing. I wasn't really booking. And I said, you know, it's because I don't want to do it. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not happy doing this anymore. And and therefore things need to change. <laughs> mm. And then with teaching, that was, um, that was kind of a natural progression. I think of where I was supposed to be anyway. I, I do believe that this is the path that was meant for me. Um, and I think I just happened to find myself in a teaching position where I was in spaces where I was acting as an unofficial or unintentional therapist in a way. And I say that very specifically because I was not trained to be a therapist. Um, but when people are hurting or things are happening in people's lives and you happen to be there listening to them, um, it can feel that people are kind of coming to you and, and expressing things in a safe space. Um, and so I thought to myself, maybe I should get trained <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so that I can do this ethically and appropriately. And, and, I, and I never pretended that I was a therapist or a counselor to any of these people um, who were coming in. Um, but I did, I was an empathetic ear and a listener and, you know, just kind of like, you know, tried to support just by having a presence um, but now, and I was like, I, I want to know how to be more effective instead of just being a, just being a listening ear. I want to know like theories and, you know, ideas and, and tools and, you know, uh, approaches that I, that I can bring into the space that might be more beneficial than just listening alone. But I will say that sometimes just listening is what a lot of people need anyway. Mm, absolutely. You know, it's funny that you bring up the the theater aspect, because for me as a kid, I wouldn't say that I saw a career in acting, but I loved reenacting different scenes from TV shows and Mm -hmm. movies. Mm -hmm. And since you were also really into theater, I want to know if you could think of any characters, whether they're from a TV show or movie, etc. What characters do you think need therapy now that you look back on them <laughs> oh, that's such a good one because um as we know you know tv shows are especially dramas right like, absolutely <laughs> almost they can like throw a dart and hit somebody who needs a character who needs <laughs> therapy right? um I'm trying to think of something a more present day you know it, it's it's funny because I think back um yeah, you know, my mind first immediately goes to cartoons, and I know it's like super mm-hmm. silly, but I think about <laughs> Hey Arnold, and I think of Helga, and I'm like, somebody should have oh, had yeah. that girl. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was Absolutely. like, that, right, that poor girl needed some help. Like, <laughs> like, like there's so oh, much man. there. Um, 
but I'm trying to think of something a little bit more relevant, you know, some, uh, not relevant, something a little bit more uh, contemporary. Um, and it, it's, it's funny. Um, I know that a lot of people aren't really into it, but, you know, over the pandemic, you know, a lot of people started watching things that they wouldn't normally watch. And so reality TV show has really kind of skyrocketed. And Absolutely. it's interesting because these are actual people. <laughs> 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 living lives and I, I won't like point any specific names but if you like watch any reality tv show i guarantee you that like a, at least half the people in there could benefit from some kind of um therapy um but if we want to talk specific characters i'm trying to think um of a show i love i i do like insecure <laughs> oh absolutely <laughs> uh, and like if you think about season one you know i think um i think the main character um therapy could be beneficial and helpful i mean for for a lot of people for many reasons there but in, the themes in that are like trying to find yourself um career development um relationship struggles um family like everything in there right and sometimes it's not even so much like this person has a diagnosable issue like this person is um you know bipolar not, nothing like that but it's sometimes like life is just hard things get complicated and having a space to go talk it out and figure out just kind of not talk it out and just this is what's happening. This is insane. This is crazy. This feels really weird. I don't know why I'm making these choices. Have someone who's not going to judge you, but who's going to ask you, okay, walk me through why you made that choice. How did you think it was going to be helpful to you? Is it acting in the way that is aligned with your values? Is it going to help you get to where you want to be? Right. All of those questions are, that's therapy. Right. And any of the characters in Insecure, especially season one, had somebody maybe asked them those questions, might have made different choices for themselves and might have, you know, you know, things might have been different. <laughs> Absolutely. I think um, the what is the I can't believe I'm forgetting her name. Molly. Mm -hmm. She actually uh, goes into therapy because the the main character, Issa, tells her, like, you know, maybe you just need therapy. And she was and she reacted the way how I think a good percentage of people would react when they hear someone mm -hmm. say you need therapy. It's like, wait, you, mm -hmm. excuse me. Like, mm -hmm. It sounds like <laughs> an insult sometimes. But mm -hmm. in but like I look back on that episode and I reacted the same way, to be honest, like, wow, that's kind of mm -hmm. disrespectful. But then she ended up going to therapy and working out or, or trying to work out her problems with her therapist. Mm -hmm. And now as now, like six years later, when I look back on that episode, I'm like, you know what? I wish I could find a nicer way to tell my friends that they should go get therapy because it does. It, it benefits a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And the thing about Insecure that I really do love is that it starts when she's in her 30s mm -hmm. and she has mm -hmm. the comfortability of just saying hey you know what I don't have it figured out and I'm yeah. very comfortable and I don't see I don't see any progression I don't see anything like nothing's changing I'm still living with my boyfriend I'm still mm -hmm. living in the same area that I've always been used to and mm -hmm. throughout the season you see her go through her growth yeah Especially for me, I really did not like the main character. And that's why I kept <laughs> watching every mm -hmm. single episode, because not to give away any spoilers to anybody who may end up starting it for the first time. But there's like, I think, episode a certain part in the episodes where um, one of my favorite characters is uh, betrayed. Mm. And I really didn't, I just did not like Issa for like three seasons. And then it got to like four, <laughs> the fourth season. And I was like, you know what? She's, she's learned from her mistakes. She could, mm -hmm. I'll give her the, the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's a really important, uh, what I love about that plot, uh, that, that character line um, is that it shows that we are capable of change. We are capable of growth. We are capable of reflection and introspection that lead to growth and change. Right. Um, and it, all it really takes is the, us making the choice to go, I want something different for myself. I, this isn't what, what's happening right now is not necessarily working for me. And um, 
or if, even if it is, I just want something different. And that's a very strong statement. And it's very, it's, a, it's not as simple as it seems because a lot of fear comes with that. Well, if I, if I make a change, what will that mean for my relationships? What will that mean for, you know, my career? What will that mean for, you know, my life? All of those things are valid questions. And it, what, it's honestly what keeps a lot of people in the same places that they are, that fear of what happens if I make the change. Absolutely. And I asked this, I asked that question because I feel like we're raised by our parents mm-hmm. and for most of us, the TV. And a lot of times we would identify ourselves with our favorite TV show character and in many cases almost try to be like them. Like, mm-hmm. like for example, I loved watching Fresh Prince of Bel-Air as a kid. Mm-hmm. And my favorite character was, was Will, Will Smith. Because mm-hmm. he was like the epitome of the cool guy. He was funny. He was the star of the basketball team. All the girls mm-hmm. liked him. Mm-hmm. The whole package. But now that I'm older and I look back on that character and I start to see the, the hidden layers of him, mm-hmm. in theory, it would be cool to, you know, live with your rich uncle and aunt. But in reality, like that could bring a lot of that could bring a lot of problems that could bring. Mm-hmm imposter syndrome or feeling Mm -hmm. of loneliness Mm -hmm. or feeling like you're unwanted because you're Mm -hmm. taken away from your home and put in a new environment or even PTSD from the fight that he got into that ended up sending him all the way out to Bel Air. So that always brings me to thinking like, wow, he would have benefited from therapy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think transitions, major life transitions like that, you know, leaving your home, living with different family members, being put into a completely different environment. I mean, it's not even just so much the difference in socioeconomic status. He was probably living in a predominantly black neighborhood and then went ended up being in a PWI, a predominantly white institution. And that that's a complete like culture shock is really. Um, And I think in later seasons, the show like they, there was a lot of levity because it was comedy, right? Um, but the show did try in many ways to address some of the things that were probably super real for this character. There's one of the most famous scenes where, you know, his dad comes out to Bel Air to be to hang out with him and and will thinks that his dad is going to take him home right and he goes upstairs to get his stuff whatever and and uncle phil comes down and uncle phil has that you know big pop-up teddy bear protective energy mm-hmm. and he knows what's going on and he, he looks at will's dad and is like why would you why I, I can't remember verbatim what it was but essentially calls him calls him out it's like why are you giving that boy hope when you know you're just gonna leave and he was like nah no man i know man or whatever he's like will you tell him i said goodbye and he was like you should you should stay and tell him yourself but his, his dad can't and, and and did it and won't and so he leaves and uh uncle phil is standing downstairs when will returns with his bag and it's this really heartbreaking moment um where you see just the devastation and the hurt um, and the vulnerability and, and Will breaks down in Uncle Phil's arms, you know, saying like, why don't he want me, man? Why don't he want me? And so the show, you know, tries to bring, tried to bring those moments in, which were super real and, and very much needed to acknowledge um, that there is more than just jokes and fun. And I think I haven't seen the new version of it. Um, what is it called, Bel Air? Yes. Um, I haven't seen the new version, but it is produced by Will. And I think that he did that intentionally, right? And I haven't seen it, so I can't speak to it. But he took what was a comedy and turned it into a drama and is probably likely addressing all of the things that you just said, right? Mm-hmm. Because it it was overlooked when he was in the role. I've seen um, Bel Air. I've rewatched, rewatched it a couple of times. And it definitely does dive deeper into not just Will's character, but every character. Like, mm. it's not just how Will feels transitioning from one place to another, but it's also Aunt Viv struggling to find her her identity outside of being a mother and a wife. Mm. It's mm. Uncle Phil being the only Black man who's in his position. It's mm-hmm. Carlton dealing with the pressures of having to be at a PWI and struggles mm-hmm. to go into college. So all those different things. 
Absolutely. And all of those things are things that can be addressed in therapy, right? You see how buried it can be, right? Um, I have um, peers, you know, colleagues who work with, um, predominantly who work with CEOs, like women who are CEOs or, or you know, um, people of color who are CEOs because there are fewer of those, them in that field, right? I have people who focus on working with moms specifically, right? Making sure that they are feeling supported and that they have their own identity. I have um, colleagues who work with college age students and adolescents, like really helping them walk through that transition <clears throat> in life. Um, and, you know, I myself work with a lot of Black clients just about self-development and empowerment and specifically Black women stepping into and owning everything that we are while also addressing that superwoman complex and being like, that's not all that we, all that we are. We can be so much more and we can, we can prioritize ourselves, right? Any, any of those characters and any of their struggles, they can be in therapy and talking about those and having a third party and a neutral, non-judgmental person to really help them flush out, this is what's going, this is how I'm feeling about this. And, and I, maybe I want something a little different, or maybe I just need a little help understanding why I'm feeling the way that I'm feeling or like, man, I want something different for myself. Okay. What is that? What is it that we want? How do we get there? Any of them can benefit from being in therapy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, when we talk about all the benefits of therapy and mm. the big changes that it could give you and the ben just the benefits of it, we still, however, have that lack of therapy, especially in mm -hmm. many communities. Mm -hmm. Why do you think there is such a negative stigma around therapy and how do we normalize it if we can? Oh, that's such a phenomenal question. And there's so much historical um, context to it. Um, uh, <laughs> part of me is like, how do I even get into it? Um, <laughs> but like, you know, I guess I'll, I'll kind of jump into the middle of it, right? Um, this country has very um, intense Black-white relations um, stemming from, you know, the fact that people were enslaved, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, like, forced into this land um, and then repressed, oppressed, um, victimized, um, hunted down like for centuries. And then, and, and then these, um, that mentality was institutionalized into our policy of this country. Um, and, 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 and therefore then we see things like Jim Crow and, you know, separate, but equal all of, and I'm saying that for a reason, right? Because a lot of what this country was built on was built to keep black and brown people out, mm -hmm. right? Um, that includes um, jobs, education, um, careers, and and access to health, um, mental health, um, resources, like all of that. A lot of the things in our country were not meant for us, or at least in the foundational in foundational. Um, path that was laid, you know, at the form, forming of uh, the country, right? So psych psychology is very much um, a field was built in whiteness. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and specifically white males. Like, it's, it's really interesting that now you look at the field and you see that it is predominantly um, females who are therapists and it is not as... Um, it is not valued because it is now considered a female-driven field, but its origins were run by white men, right? Freud, uh, Jung, Bowen, like I'm just throwing out names of like lots of different people, but all white men, it was the mm -hmm. origins. Um, and um, it was very um, based in pathology, which is looking at what's wrong with people and how to fix that. And blackness inherently at that time was wrong, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of times um, in early, 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 you know, psychology, when they were talking about or dealing with people of color, it was because the any issues that were arising was because Black people had low IQs or Black people were inherently inferior, like all of those things. And so, of course, Black people were like, I'm like, nah. <laughs> 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 Right. You're not about to sit up here and tell me that, like, I'm struggling because I'm dumb. I'm, I'm not. Right. And again, this is I'm talking about like way like 1800s, like, you know, like when all of this stuff is started. Mm -hmm. But 
that is that is kind of like the a part of the origins of it. There was a huge distrust of Black people for white people in general because it was always a dangerous space to be in. White spaces were dangerous spaces for Black people. And so this idea that there were white people who could, you could go to and tell all of your secrets to who are supposed to help you feel better. You're like, no, nah, I don't trust you. I'm going to tell you my secrets. You're going to get me in trouble. My family's going to, you know, you know, uh, suffer for this. I, like, no, like, don't no. Mm-hmm. We keep it to ourselves. We have our own community because y'all are y'all are always against us kind of thing. Right. And, and mm-hmm. again, stemming from that historical place of black people protecting black people protecting black people and the separation of black people and white people right and just mm-hmm. huge amounts of distrust and then continued distrust specifically within the medical field right um take um the tuskegee experiment um this experiment in the south essentially where um medical professionals white medical professionals um were doing a study on syphilis and they um enrolled hundreds of black men who had syphilis into this study um and instead of treating the syphilis that they had they just watched the progression of the syphilis Mm -hmm. and let it spread throughout the community and so essentially using black people as lab specimens Mm -hmm. instead of actually helping the black men and the black community at large Mm -hmm. and so that breeds a lot of distrust you're not here to actually help me you're here to observe me and to judge me and to continue to cause harm in my communities and to the people that i love so historical contexts actual you know um studies and medical histories that have happened breeds huge amounts of distrust in the black community for white spaces. Um, and so it makes sense that, you know, I, 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 when I grew up, I, I heard a lot, I'm from the South, like, you know, oh, mm-hmm. don't be talking to nobody, no head doctor about your business. Like if you, if you have mm-hmm. a struggle, you talk to your pastor, you keep it in the family, don't be running your mouth about, you know, what's happening in our, in our, in our, in our hoods, you know, to these white folk, right? They over there judging us, not helping us, going to make things work for us, you know. And then all of a sudden, police show up at our door. It's it stems mm-hmm. from it stems from valid concerns based on historical perspectives um, that, but that are shifting. And so, I would say the stigma is if you are in therapy, you have given in to the white man. No. <laughs> <laughs> No, No. that is not, that is no longer the case. Um, I think it's one of the reasons why there has been such a huge push within the last, I'm going to say at least decade, if not more, to have more clinicians of color, Black, Latino, Asian, um, Native American, Middle Eastern, um, the list goes on, so that there is um, access for people of color to go to someone within the field who they feel more comfortable with, who knows a little bit more about their experience without having them to talk about it or, or to explicitly like, you know, put it out there, right? It, it opens up the space for more comfortability knowing this person understands my culture. They understand the history maybe, even if we aren't the same person, we come from different neighborhoods, we come from different states, right? There is just a common understanding what it means to be black in this country is a common understanding of what it is to be an immigrant in this country is a common understanding of what it is to be um you know a pacific islander you know in this country or whatever and people are looking for that right it's there without the representation it makes it harder for people to want to step into the access but it's not so but, but i think the part that will help to break down the stigma is really reiterating that yes there have been historical things that have made this an unsafe space or made you wary of the space. But at the end of the day, it's really about finding resources that are going to help you achieve mental wellness, feel better about your life and heal from suffering and trauma that you have endured. Mm, It is about getting the help that you need and it is okay to ask for help. It is okay to seek help. It is okay to have a third party help you. You also do have the responsibility to choose someone who you feel is best for you. You don't have to pick the first therapist that you interview or that you consult with, have a consultation with. Mm. 
right? If you have, for some people, they may not have that privilege because they have insurance and they are assigned a therapist, but you get to say to your insurance company, this therapist is not working for me. I want to be assigned a new therapist, right? You don't, you get to choose who you work with, mm-hmm. right? That is your choice. You get the, you have self-determination and autonomy, right? You don't have to work with someone who is not helpful to you. And, and I will say that there, not every therapist is a good one. <laughs> like I'm not absolutely <laughs> right. Right. So if they come in at you sideways, right. Like mm-hmm. roll yeah. out, right. Those, and, and don't feel bad about it. Right. You are paying money for a service. If they are coming at you sideways, not helping you actually causing more harm, roll out, find a new therapist. And you can also, um, um, you can report therapists who are unethical or who are illegal, illegal to help others not endure harm that you may have endured a lot of people don't know that you can report a therapist who has done some nasty stuff Mm. right and they will and they will be held accountable right so does that answer the question i I said a lot (laughs) no 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 it was perfect it was a lot of things that like helped me think about even more because you know going back to what you said about the whole tuskegee experiment and why we have this distrust over for lack of better term white medicine and Mm -hmm you know, people who don't look like us being in that other seat, listening to everything that we're saying. Because I remember the first time that I did, the first time that I tried therapy, I remember it was very uncomfortable because it, it was with a white woman. And mm-hmm. I would have that, that psychological thought in the back of my head, like, hold up, like, why are you like, what are you writing down right now? Like, mm-hmm. what? Like, I did, like, it just felt like I was a, a test subject. And, and, you know, I know, like, deep down, it's like, they're doing what every therapist does. They just want to keep mm-hmm. notes so that they can mm-hmm. help me. But mm-hmm. it just felt uncomfortable. And just for me in the beginning, I wanted to have someone who looked like me just because just because I wanted, you know, someone that I could almost relate to. I don't want to have to explain the Black experience on mm-hmm. top of my already problem. I want Mm -hmm. someone who could see like, oh, I can see why you're going through that. I can see why you may feel this way so that we could better work towards the problem. Yeah, absolutely. And what I'll say to that, too, is there are a lot of um, clinicians out there who are white um, who are really phenomenal and like they are checking themselves they are doing their work they are actively and overtly anti-racist anti-oppression anti-discrimination um you know and and they're 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 doing their own work to make sure that they're stepping to the spaces to be as culturally um uh it's not competent because competency is hard, but like uh, cultural humility to have as much cultural humility as possible so that they can serve clients of color to the best of their abilities. And that's amazing because in in any of the, um, in any of the kind of like battles, I call them battles that we're having, Mm -hmm. you know, black life matters or anything like that. um, it, It can be helpful to have, um, white peers who are doing their work, step into the space alongside us. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I do want to put that out there. You know, if, if you are per, someone who is finding it hard to find a therapist of color, but you come across a white therapist, you get to ask them questions to kind of determine if they can be that for you. Can you tell me a little bit about the work that you're doing around around um, anti-racism or race work or anti-oppression? Like, are you someone who is building your own competency in these areas? Um, can you tell me a little bit about how you relate um, your, your, your um, stance on um, race and uh, gender and uh, queer, um, you know, identities, right? You get, you can, when, when you in- consult with a therapist, ask them these questions. If they stutter, maybe they're not for you, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? But if they come at you and go, okay, like, you know, th- this is something that I'm working on actively, consistently, um, then maybe then maybe you might feel comfortable giving them a chance. But those are questions that you can ask as well, right? Like, mm-hmm. I would encourage people to not shy away from that. Um, if your therapist balks at it, literally, keep it going, keep it moving, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> right? But, you know, there, there are some really solid um, white clinicians out there who, who understand 
they they know the they they got they they understood the assignment. <laughs> mm, yeah, <laughs> right? absolutely. And I think those are perfect first steps for normalizing therapy for others too, especially for people of minority who may think like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to talk to someone who can't relate to me. But these are mm-hmm. perfect first steps for normalizing it, and mm-hmm. just just being open about if you do go to therapy or if you are seeking out therapy, don't be afraid to to say it, you know, just Mm -hmm. like, it's a part, like the same way how we're not afraid to say that we have to go to the doctor for Mm -hmm. our annual checkups or Mm -hmm. the dentist to make sure everything's right with our teeth, you know, Mm -hmm. optometrist, et cetera, et cetera. We need to make sure that everything isn't just right with our physical self. We have to make sure everything is right with our mental self as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love that you use that analogy of going to the doctor, right? The doctor helps us to make sure that our body is sound and functioning. A therapist helps you to just continue to make sure that your mind, heart, and soul are sound and functioning in the way that you want, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I also say that there are many ways to go about receiving guidance and healing. Therapy is one of them, but depending on who you are, like, you know, some people may like, you know, may, may not it may not vibe for some people, but mm-hmm. people can go can go to their pastors if they want to. Some people go to spiritual guides. People do tarot. People do readings and cleansings and stuff like that. I'm I'm not the one to not yuck on anybody's yum, right? Mm-hmm. Or knock whatever is going to be helpful. If you have found something that is beneficial to you, has brought you peace, has brought you healing, allow yourself to step into that. Therapy is absolutely one of those options, right? And so I I encourage, I think that anybody can benefit from it at any point in their lives. And I'm a huge advocate for it. And I would encourage anybody to to step into it and give it a try. Mm, Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, shifting gears, just shifting gears just a little bit. um, Mm -hmm. Ever since the COVID-19 outbreak in 2020, Mm. we saw for the first time, the first time in my life, at least, the whole country shut down and not just America, but a lot of different locations. We saw businesses shut down. Everyone had to stay inside and avoid as much contact as possible. And toilet paper was nowhere to be found because everyone was talking about. (laughs) But (laughs) during this time, we started to see a lot of people who were so used to those in-person interactions have to get used to staying in the house. So I want to know, how much of a change in therapy has there been since COVID? I honestly think that um, the access to therapy has increased exponentially due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, And what I mean by that is because a lot of places, not a lot, most places outside of residential programs or um, what we call intensive inpatient programs where people were actually staying, you know, in a facility, um, almost everyone was forced to go online. Um, So practices and and institutions that previously had not been set up for teletherapy were very quickly forced to get, make it happen so that they continue to serve their clients and the population and the community. And what we saw was um, that people even even after going back into person, um, people really liked the accessibility of being online. Um, people can do their therapy sessions from the comfort and safety of their home. They can do their therapy sessions while they're on lunch break at work. They can go on a walk while they're in therapy to get some fresh air and kind of move their body. Um, some people even will do therapy from their cars or do therapy like, um, you know, from other locations, um, it, it, it just allows, and I mean, we live in LA, so <laughs> not having to get into your car and drive, you know, possibly like five miles can literally take you maybe 45 minutes, right? So, mm-hmm. so not having to deal with, you know, the massive amounts of traffic that we uh, have in LA has just made therapy so much more accessible and, um, and, and, and possible for people who it may not have been possible for previously. So I think that that's been really, really, really beneficial. Um, and the other thing I'll say to that is like during the pandemic, um, anxiety, depression increased exponentially amongst, um, you know, the common person. And those are very common anyway. Everyone at some point in their lives will experience anxiety and will experience feelings of depression. 
Um, but during the pandemic, it was quite um, intense, you know, uh, widespread. Um, and so people having ability to kind of log on and speak with someone about their anxieties and how they were feeling impacted by the pandemic and, and job loss and not being able to see family and feeling cooped up and, you know, fears and concerns was also really helpful. Um, and teletherapy has remained even now as things are opening up. Um, you know, I, I want I was going to say life is kind of quote unquote back to normal, even though it's not really because the virus is still very much raging out there and actually cases mm -hmm. are rising right now with this newest variant. Mm -hmm. um, but people are, I, I will say like I've talked to my clients, um, I, I don't have the option to do in person at this particular time, but I've addressed it with some of my clients and they're like, no, nah, I'm good. Like I'm chilling. I get to be at home. I don't need to like, you know, <laughs> like be going anywhere. That's cool. Right. We still, mm. it's still as effective as in person. We get the work done. We get into the depth of it. I get to ask questions and gently challenge you about, you know, the choices that you're making, uh, you know, what you want for yourself and, and, and check in and make sure that you're, that I'm holding you accountable to the things that you're saying that you want to do. It's still gently, right? If you don't do it, I, I can't force you, right? But we can talk about maybe why you didn't. So it's, it, it doesn't impact the quality of the work. It's very interesting when you, when you brought up um, like the spikes in anxiety and all these different worries during the pandemic. Um, it was very interesting to me the first time when I heard that people were going through depression and anxiety from from having to stay home because just just for me at the time I was in my my senior mm. year and I had to commute an hour away from wow. home and yeah. classes every day and mm -hmm. at that time I was working an hour away and I had to juggle a lot on top of taking full loads of classes so when the pandemic hit and they said, right, we need everybody to stay home and take your classes online. I was, and my job said the same thing, like, you guys have to just stay home. For me, personally, I was just like, wait, I have to stay home? <laughs> yeah. Like, it's not just a choice anymore. Like, oh, this right. is perfect. Like, yeah. I get to just stay home. I get to watch my favorite movies and I don't have to drive. Yes. And stimulus checks were coming in. I was like, oh, this is paradise. But yes. then, but then, like, as I would, like, as I would call my friends and I would ask them how they're doing, I, I saw a big, a big difference, like, from me and my extroverted, super social friends, you know, mm -hmm. they felt mm -hmm. like they were just stagnant. They felt like nothing was moving for them. They wanted the world to open back up. So it was mm -hmm. very, very interesting for me to see yeah. like, oh, this actually like, what's, what seems peaceful to me could be someone else's hell. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I'll, I wanna normalize that and just validate that there for introverts, they were like, yes, this is what we've been waiting for. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Um, but, you know, for, for, for others, it, it could, especially, and each situation is so different. So for the, those who are much more extroverted, not being able to have that social in-person social engagement was really challenging. But then, but then we think about those who had kids, parents um, were really struggling during that time. Um, you know, those who still have full-time jobs and kids and, um, you know, then thinking of our essential workers, our healthcare workers, you know, grocery store workers, you know, um, people who are losing family, you know, and not being able to go and see them or to go to the funerals or a celebration of life ceremonies or any of that. It, there was just so many factors um, that were compounding into it. And then you think of housing security and, and the stress that that happened and homelessness increased during the pandemic as well, especially in LA, you know, for those who may not live in LA, um, it was view you could see it you could see the homelessness um increasing in the streets as you drove through and um so there it was you know a lot of and then for people who are witnessing that as well you know thinking what's happening to our society what's happening in our cities what's happening in our government what's happening in our world there was a lot of existential dread that was you know <laughs> mm -hmm. increasing amongst the masses and so it was a really interesting time because people were forced to kind of stop and pause and think um, <laughs> you know, and right. observe. Um, and so that can definitely 
um, change perspective. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, I think I think around the pandemic was the time or at least like towards like five, maybe six months in is when I started to be more on my like therapeutic. Let me check to make sure that you're really genuinely okay type of vibe. That's when I really want not saying that I wasn't like that before, but once we got into the pandemic, I I would say I had more time. So yeah. a lot of times, even now, when my friends or family would talk to me about a situation that they're going through, I kind of find myself myself stuck between responses like, do I give my advice or do they just want to vent? Do Ooh. I give them honest, the honest tough love that I'm used to getting? Or do I sympathize with them and try to be more gentle? Mm. So I want to ask you, do you try to find the balance with how you respond to your client's problems or is there no balance and you just have to choose one? No, I I always try to find a balance, you know, because when clients come to me, I'll say, you know, I will never tell my clients what to do but I will ask them about why, about the choices that they're considering making um, and if they believe that they're going to, uh, and, and why, um, and if they believe that it's going, those choices are going to help them to get to where they want to be. And, um, and I, will gently, I will gently challenge things where if, if, if I'm like, I think you might be lying to me or <laughs> like, mm-hmm. or to yourself. Like, and, but also like, you, you know, it's, it's about making sure that this space still feels comfortable and accepting and non-judgmental, right? So I can't like come out, you know, and just be like, that's a lie, right? You know, mm-hmm. like, right? Or like, ah, but I will ask, I'm like, okay, this, I feel like I'm missing something here. This, I'm not quite fully getting the picture here. Can you tell me a little, again, a little bit about what's going on here, right? Like it feels as if, if, if maybe you're hesitant about this, I could be wrong. Cause again, I'm not you, but like, I'm sensing that something's a little off, right? Can you, can you share with me a little bit more about that? Um, I guess the only time that I would be like hardcore, like telling you like how it is or what it needs to be is when it comes to issues of abuse or safety. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, you know, someone's like, I'm going to go and like, smash in their side window i'll be like don't do that mm, right <laughs> <laughs> like, that's we're we're not about to do that we're not getting arrested today don't do that uh, <laughs> right but i'm like but I, tell me a little bit about why you want to right and then and then we can start to uncover like oh like i'm upset they hurt my feelings i'm feeling really hurt right um but but by and large, it's, it's always a balance of just making sure that they feel that i've heard what they have said and then me coming back with a question to try to understand more deeply what 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 this is about. Did mm. that answer the question? Absolutely. It feels okay. because I think that even when um, even sometimes it is also beneficial if you're talking to a friend, at least it's beneficial to ask them, do you want my honest do you want my advice or do you want to just vent and just get this off your chest? Because I know a lot of times, a lot of times for me, I know that this other person knows the answer. I know that they know how to fix this problem, but Mm -hmm. they just want to let it off and just get it. Like just make sure that they're feeling heard. And then sometimes for other people, they just want to, they, they need honest advice, you know, especially Mm -hmm. for me growing up, I, I only presented my problems or situations because I genuinely felt stuck or I yeah. needed help. But yeah. I think that there is like everyone's different and everyone's situations are different. So they all come with different responses. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You said that so beautifully. I don't even. I don't, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So when we um when we think about therapists, we think of someone who we can tell everything to, whether it is good or bad but however (laughs) I know for me like because I worked as 
I've worked in the dental field for about six years since I was mm-hmm. 18. And I was mm-hmm. a dental assistant for about two and a half years. Nice. And a lot of times, like, I would have patients who would come in and treat us like we're their therapists. And Ooh. a lot of times that's that's beautiful. Like, if you want to just come in just to talk while you're getting your teeth clean or whatever it may be, like, we definitely want you to feel comfortable. But there have been some situations where boundaries needed to be set, uh-huh. whether if it's the problem that you're bringing to me or if it's something that you're saying about me or if you're being a little too friendly with me. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. it's, we do have to set that, that boundary. So I want to ask you, have there ever been any moments or patients where you've had to set those boundaries with or maybe you've had to deny the the request to be someone's therapist? Uh, yeah. So um, I'll start with the last part first. But um, if I um, get a, receive a consultation request and I go through with a consultation, what that is is just somebody reaching out to me saying, hey, I saw your information on your website. I would love to have a conversation to see if, you know, we we could start a therapeutic working relationship. I do a free 30 minute consultation um, because I think fit is really important. Um, During that time, I ask a series of questions and they kind of inform me about what they're hoping to get out of therapy and what brought them um, to, what led them to seek out a consultation. During that time, if I'm recognizing that I don't have, that is something that is not in my wheelhouse or something that I am not competent in, then I will, I will say, I will tell them the truth. Like this is an area that I don't have competency in, or this is an area that's not really my specialty. Um, and I would suggest that you continue seeking consultations with other providers um, who whose area of specialty it is, or they have a little bit more knowledge um, in that area. Um, so I've, I've, I've done that regularly. I think it's an ethical practice um, because um, for me to take on, for example, I have a basic um, knowledge and understanding of working with trauma, but I am not a trauma specialist. There are specific people who specialize in working with trauma and healing trauma. Um, I am trauma informed, but I am not a trauma specialist. And so if someone came to me and they have um, um, complex PTSD, multiple traumas, and possibly even drug use, um, I am not that is not my area of expertise and I don't have the competency in that area to help them in the ways that they need it. It would be unethical for me to enter into a working relationship with them. And I will refer them out to someone who has um, those, those specific skills. Right. Mm. Um, So that's that first part. But as far as clients who I currently have, um, I, in our first few sessions kind of really try to set a tone that this is a therapeutic relationship. Um, And while the goal is for us to develop a relationship in which you can grow to feel comfortable and hopefully one day feel that you can trust me, um, it is still very much a specific relationship. Um, You know, in my consultation groups where I talk with other therapists, we talk a lot of times about how therapy, some of the best um, therapy is when you feel that a therapist could be a friend, but you know that they aren't and you don't treat them as such. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it is important that in those sessions that they are about the client. So that's the difference between a therapist and a friend. Friends is a reciprocal relationship where you both are sharing information about each other and like going back and forth, back and forth. In therapy, my job, what I want to be doing is to making it about you. I don't mind sharing things about myself every now and again, but I only share if it is in service of you. Right. Mm-hmm. The, it, the, the focus is on the client and that is that is how it absolutely should be every single time <laughs> mm. um, and, and I think that's a huge difference you know so it feels like a friend but it's not really a friend right it is someone who you can go to who you know won't judge you who you know cares about you who you know supports you right and they just happen to know almost everything about you and you know some things maybe about them (laughs) (laughs) right absolutely and i can i can imagine how it could be also a little difficult being a woman in this type of space because Mm -hmm. for because 
just in my mindset, it would be kind of tough trying to set that boundary of like, yes, you could come and talk to me whenever you need to, whenever you would like. I think about this every single time when a therapist says, oh, you could text me whenever you would like. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm cool. And it's just because (laughs) it's because like like I I do want there to be a boundary. Mm -hmm. But for like as a woman in that space, like how would you say your experience has been with that situation? No, absolutely. I think that's a great question. I think it, you know, leads back to like boundaries in general for a therapist. Every therapist is different. So I work in what we call private practice, which means that I don't work for a clinic or an organization. My supervisor owns her own business and I am her associate. Um, every, every clinician will have their own boundaries. I am not a 24 hour emergency service provider. So if you are in a crisis, the likelihood of you reaching me is a little bit lower, not because I don't care about you, but because I see clients throughout the day and I have set hours. And after that, I don't typically tend to work. I don't, my clients, when I, in the very beginning, when we have our first session, I go over what we call an informed consent, as well as the policies and procedures. And I make it clear to my clients that I do not text, right? If you are having an emergency, you can like a medical emergency or a please dial 911 because I may be in sessions. I may not be readily available or accessible to you. If there's something that you would like to, um, if you would like an emergency session, you're more than welcome to email me and I'll see what I have in my calendar and we can set that up. But I'm not so easily accessible, mm-hmm. right? Um, we have our scheduled session. I will be there if I can't make it for some reason or something happens to me, I do my best to inform you ahead of time. Um, If you don't make it, I will be there for the duration of your session. Um, But I tend tend to be a bit more firmer with my boundaries around access um, because this was important and needed for me to be my best clinician, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Or to be the best clinician that I can be. It also helps with the 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 kind of understanding that this is a professional therapeutic relationship so even though i may feel like a friend or i may be friendly you are paying for a service and you can't i I am not i'm not accessible at just any point or day now if somebody emails me and says like this is an urgent thing about billing or insurance or can i schedule an appointment i try to respond within 24 business hours because it is this is a profession right um so it's not like I ignore people, but it's it's very structured. It's it's very boundaried, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like I was saying. Right? For for my clients' um, sense of you know security, well being, privacy, and for my own, right? Like I don't want you to feel that you have to like be checking in with me. That's cool. I got you when mm-hmm. uh, during our session, right? Um, and also part of that is I want my client to be working on generalizing the things that we work on in session into their day everyday life outside a session so if you're experiencing heightened anxiety and your first thought is i need to talk to crystal i want that thought to change from i need to talk to crystal to how how have the thing what are the things that i have learned with crystal that i can do now in this moment to help me I like while I yes I'm a huge fan of therapy and yes it is my job but the goal is not to be in therapy forever unless you are specifically there because you want to be there for maintenance mm-hmm. right the goal is to get to where you want to be and, and where you hope to be whether that's managing your anxiety achieving um, setting goals for yourself and achieving those goals learning how to have better communication with partners friends and family or whatever right that is the goal right? That is what we're working on. And I think that's the, another thing that makes it a difference. If, if you're feeling that your therapy isn't doing anything, that y'all aren't talking about anything, that it's not going anywhere ongoingly, right? That's something to bring up with your therapist. Occasionally, there'll be a session here or there where it feels a little lighter and you're like, oh, that was just like kind of chill, like nothing, nothing too, you know, crazy, like too insightful popped up. That That's okay. Every now and again for a session to be like that, but it should feel that they're helpful and productive to you by and large. And that's another, a, another boundary piece. I ask my clients pretty regularly, are you still feeling that this, that therapy is helpful and productive to you, right? Mm. And if, and if it isn't, what do we need to change? Do we need to take a look at 
what the goals are, what we're working on? Do we need to decrease frequency or do we need to talk about discontinuation because you're feeling comfortable and stable? Right. That's the ethical practice. That's what it should be. Mm. That's beautiful. Beautifully put. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Now, I want to know, and for anybody else who may be listening, Mm -hmm. what advice would you give to someone who either doesn't have access to therapy, Mm -hmm. can't afford therapy, or even struggles with taking those first steps to getting therapy? That's a great question. Um, There are, and like I was saying in the last couple of years, especially during the pandemic, there's been a wonderful wave of um, nonprofits and organizations that have um, began or started um, in an effort to make therapy more accessible for people. Um, A couple off the top of my head that come to me is the Loveland Foundation, which is specifically specifically for black and brown women. Um, But you can apply to receive up to 12 vouchers that are each voucher being up to one hundred and twenty dollars that will um, assist you in in getting therapy. So essentially you get 12 vouchers that that you can give to a therapist. that will cover up to $120 per session. And so it's for you, you're not paying that, so paying that out of pocket. Um, another organization is a Lawrence Boris Henderson Foundation. Taraji P. Henson is her foundation. Mm. Um, they also do scholarships um, for, um, for people of color who are looking to get into therapy. Um, there is um, a couple of places, I think it's called like therapy for black men. And then there's um, the BB weight room are a couple of places that have scholarships for black men who are seeking therapy. Um, um, I would say start by Googling or searching places that, you know, scholarships for scholarships for therapists or uh, financial assistance for getting therapy can be a great way to start. Um, And then if you find a therapist that you like, reaching out to them and asking them if they have a sliding scale or if they have um, low fee um, spots on their caseload. Um, A lot of therapists, especially therapists of color, try to do this in order to make our services more accessible and to reach as many people as possible, especially those who um, have more um, strict um, budgeting. Um, um, Having a sliding scale allows us to you know, make a living for ourselves, you know, with our full fee clients, but also making sure that we're giving back um, and providing spaces for those who um, need, who need a financial break. Um, And then there is Open Path Collective, which is a nonprofit organization um, where therapists can put themselves on this directory um, when they are offering low low fee or sliding scale slots. Um, And I think Open Path, um, the maximum that you would pay for a session would be $60 for an individual and $80 for a couple. um, It could be lower than that, but that's the maximum that you would pay if you found a therapist through Open Path Collective. Um, and then, um, so that's accessing for, for those who it is harder to kind of get for financial reasons, as far as taking those steps to get into therapy. Um, I would say if you're thinking about it, um, allow yourself to step into that space of, um, of desire, right. And then also to acknowledge the feelings that acknowledge and validate for yourself, the feelings that come up around it, which could be fear or concern, or even if it's a feeling of shame, right. Um, Those feelings are information, right. And it doesn't mean that you aren't worth the investment. It just means that you're a human who's having, who's coming up against probably a lot of internal societal and systemic feeling, uh, uh, systemic um, barriers that are, uh, that are, rearing their heads as you're trying to think about making a change for yourself, right? And then allowing yourself to notice those feelings come up and then reminding yourself that this is about me and my growth and my healing. And if that's the goal, then I'm going to step over these things. I'm going to step over the fear. I'm going to step over the the, uh, social barriers. I'm going to step over the systemic um, uh, taboo or stigma. And I'm I'm going to put myself first. And I'm going to get better because that is what I want and that is what I need, right? Mm. And so it's not about trying to push those fears aside. It's about acknowledging them and going, hey, I know where this is coming from. I know that this stems from a place of protection. And um, thank you 
for trying to protect me. But what I really need is to address this and to heal. So I'm going to I'm going to move forward with it anyway. Mm, that's amazing. That's beautiful. Thank I want to say I want to say thank you so much for being in this space of therapy, because like, like we've said in this interview, you know, we don't see too many people who look like us mm-hmm. accessing therapy, let alone jumping into the field of being a therapist, especially for the past centuries, decades, however long. So Mm -hmm. the fact that you are in this space and you're offering this help to anybody who, or to any, not just offering your help, but if you don't feel as though you fit their description, you still offer links and different Mm -hmm. paths for them. And -hmm. I just want to say thank you so much for that because I know even though I don't know any of your patients, I know a lot of them have either improved their lives or are in a better place than they were before because they've met you. I just want to tip my hat off for you for that. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for saying that. But thank you. Thank you. Now, are there any social media sites or links that you would want people to find you on? Um, I do have a website. <laughs> I'm trying Perfect. to build my social media presence. <laughs> I will get there eventually. Um, <laughs> but my website, if anybody would like to look at, I'm, I'm on a couple of directories. So I'll do the directories first and then I'll give you the link to the website. But I am on Therapy for Black Girls, mm-hmm. um, which was founded by Dr. Joy uh, DeGru, I believe is her last name. She's uh, amazing. I'm also on Inclusive Therapists. Um, I am on psychology today and my website, my personal website will be www.crystalclarktherapy.com, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-C-L-A-R-K, therapy, T-H-E-R-A-P-Y.com. Um, and that's, that's, that's my website. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Well, we've come to the end of the of the ep- of the episode and I just want to say thank you once again for taking time out of your day to do this for me. I really appreciate it and I can't wait to release this episode. You did perfect. Ah, well, thank you so much. It was really a joy to talk to you. Thank you for having me. It was so much fun, such a pleasure and I can't wait to hear the rest of your episodes. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Thank you so much. You're welcome.